Well, we're going to turn back to the passage we read there, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Sometimes people um, argue about which letter of Paul's is his most important. And um, they have various reasons for um, assessing what one they think is, it fits that category. And Usually it comes down to a uh, kind of competition between Romans and Ephesians. Of course, uh, that may not be a very spiritually healthy activity to engage in. But anyway, that happens quite often. And, um, and others, while they um, may not want to... Uh, compare different books of the Bible, they might like to say which is their favorite one. So sometimes people will say they love the Gospel of John, or they love certain of the Psalms, or they might even say they like the book of Ephesians. If you were to ask me at this moment, what is my favorite book? It's Ephesians. But that only lasts as long as I'm reading it. Because when I turn to read something else in the Bible, it becomes my favorite book for the moment. And the point between being made, hopefully, uh, by these kind of uh, comments is that we have to have pleasure in reading God's word and there has to be anticipation it is God's word he speaks doesn't speak anywhere else but he speaks in his word It's not merely that he has spoken, which is true. And he guided the various authors to uh, say what he wanted them to say. But he didn't, as it were, then let the Bible loose without him going with it. So when we read these verses or any other verses in the Bible, God speaks. So therefore, when we read it, he was speaking. It's good to recognize that. Great privilege to be Listening to God. The psalmist said, didn't he? I'll hear what God the Lord will say. And he tells us why. Because he says to his folk, he'll speak peace. So when we heard these verses, we should have sensed peace. Shalom. A very interesting word. Combines pleasure, appreciation, suitableness. Just a whole range of beneficial aspects are found in the word shalom. Quite often we think of the word peace as 
the absence of trouble. But that's just because we are used to seeing things negatively. But when we come to think of God, we should think positively. And in verse 2, Paul says what he wants for his readers. And what he wants for his readers is peace. And it's reasonable for us to assume that he expected the peace to start in verse 3. And we can certainly see from Paul's words in 3 to 14, this long sentence, we can see that he's got peace. I mean, he's, he's writing this letter from some kind of imprisonment. So his circumstances are, are not what we would call uh, conducive to being content. But here he is, and it's obvious from what he says that he's a man at peace. So, over the next few weeks, on Sunday evenings, I want us to look at this letter. No doubt we've done it before, but there's different ways of looking at the Bible's contents. Sometimes we can look at it as a gardener. You know, a proper gardener goes round his garden or her garden, looking at each flower, dealing with each weed. Some of them who are more enthusiastic even kind of measure the height of the grass. And, now, and we can do that with God's word. And there's nothing wrong with that. God doesn't mind his word being scrutinized. And, and when we do scrutinize it in a very close way, perhaps if we want to change the imagery from that of a gardener to that of somebody with a microscope, it's astonishing what we'll find. There's lots of things that are not visible at first glance to somebody, but when they take a microscope, wow, didn't know that was there. And we can do that with God's word. But another way of looking at it is to be like a mountaineer, uh, to climb the heights in order to get a good view on a sunny day. I'm not a mountaineer, I'm sure not too many of you are either, but, but um, in my probably wrong assessment, I don't see the point of climbing a mountain on a foggy day. Because what are you going to see when you get to the top? Unless, of course, the fog clears and the top of the mountain is above it. But if you are going to climb a mountain on a clear day, and you can just look round north, south, east, and west. And that's one way to look at the Bible as well, to climb to the heights. Or again, if we want to change the illustration, to a telescope. Rather than a microscope, we just take a telescope and we look as far as we can in every direction. And there are biblical mountains that help us to do that. I mean, one Bible mountain or one chapter is often being compared to a Bible mountain is Romans 8. Just climb to the top of the hill and take out your telescope and look ahead. Look ahead to the time when the creation will cease its groaning. 
Another mountain I would suggest is Mount Ephesians. Just look at the contents and hopefully we'll see that because that's the process that I kind of intend to use the next few weeks um, to be viewing life from the top of Mount Ephesians, not the top of Mount Ephesus. You go to Ephesus today, you won't see very much, but a pile of ruins. But um, Mount Ephesians, it's as high as it's ever been. And it's good for us uh, to ascend it. Now here, verses 1 to 14, Paul here is, um, Paul, as we know, had a very devout Jewish background. And here in verses 1 to 14 is a kind of Jewish statement of praise. A Jew, a devout Jew, uh, would stand up in the synagogue and say what he thought of God. And he would use the best knowledge that he had to describe the greatness of God. And he wouldn't necessarily stop to explain himself. He would just let it flow. Let it out. What do you think of God? And here Paul is doing something similar, except he changes the, the statement from being a Jewish one to being a Christian one. And as we can see that from the, in, the, in this statement, he mentions each person of the Trinity. Now, he does call God our Father in verse 2. But I don't know if you noticed that in verse 3, he doesn't. Uh, rather, in verse 3, he refers to the Father as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, Paul uh, always knew why he said something. That can't always be said of me, and it may also be, not be the case that can be said of you, but we might just use words and not really think too carefully about how we have phrased something. But Paul, Paul didn't think that way, and he was very careful as to how he stated things. And as he tells us what he thinks is great about God, about God the Father, because verses, one, verses 3 to 14 are primarily um, statements about God the Father and what he does and what he has involved the other two persons of the Trinity to do. So, what's number one thing about God the Father that Paul wants to praise him for? And what he wants to praise him for is that he's a God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he speak that way? And I think the reason that he speaks this way is that he's not referring to the three divine persons and the role they have within the Trinity. There were three, one God, He's not referring to that here. Rather, he's referring to them, to the roles they have in salvation. And that's a, an interesting thing. Because 
We don't actually know very much about what life in the Trinity is like. Well, how can we? We are only creatures. But we are told a lot about their involvement in the plan of salvation. What each of them does. And our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should he be called that? Why not just call him Jesus Christ? Or why not just call him Jesus? Why say this long, longish title, our Lord Jesus Christ? If we were to say that to one another, what would we mean by this title? He's our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as I'm sure we all know, Christ is Messiah. So, and Jesus is his human name. So he's Jesus the Messiah. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament predictions about the coming deliverer. But why call him Lord? Well, that's because he has been highly exalted. And who has he been highly exalted by? He's been highly exalted by his God and Father. So here Paul, as he begins this statement of praise, he thinks of where Jesus is. And that's a very Christ-centered thing to do. Just to think of where Jesus is. Paul himself, writing another letter, says that we're to set our minds on things above where Christ is at the right hand of God. What's he doing at the right hand of God? He's Lord. He's functioning as Lord. Lord of all. It's his reward for his amazing work on the cross. But anyway... It's the first thing I want to mention. Paul wants, Paul, in his concept of our great God, always wants us to remember where Jesus is. You know, it is possible to get involved in all kinds of abstract discussions of God. And that, no doubt, that's fine in this place. But we can never out of our minds that the second person of the Trinity the eternal son became Jesus and having become Jesus he became the Christ and having been the Christ he's now Lord of all and we look up at him and we admire him and we celebrate the fact and that's where he is highly exalted, never going to be anything else forevermore. And Paul wants us to celebrate that. And he starts his statement of praise with a sentence that we could say is just jam-packed full of the centrality of Christ. As we look at these um, verses, I just want to think of four things, really. The sphere. Where is God active? And then, secondly, the sovereignty behind it. And thirdly, the sonship that God planned. And fourthly, the spirit. The sphere, well, it's mentioned in verse 3. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
the sovereignty behind it all. That's in verse 4. The sonship that Paul is excited about, that's in verses 5 to 10. And then the Holy Spirit, verses 11 to 14. So, the sphere in the heavenly. What do we think he means by that? This particular phrase, in the heavenlies, only occurs in the book of Ephesians. And it's mentioned on five occasions. And if we want to go back to the illustration I had of taking out your telescope and looking out on the vistas, well, the space in which we are to look out is what Paul calls the heavenlies. And in Ephesians, he refers to this description, and we have no idea why he refers to it only in Ephesians, but as we look at the five references, we can see five ways of looking at things. Because there in verse 3 of chapter 1, the heavenlies are the place, it's the place where spiritual blessings are known. Nowhere else. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's not referring to heaven, because we're not in heaven. Neither were the people that he was writing this letter to. But obviously there are places that are touched by heaven. But anyway, it's the place of all our blessings. The second reference to this is in verse 18 of chapter 1, where he says about Christ, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the heavenly places are the places where Jesus reigns. He's seated at his right hand. Third one is in Ephesians chapter 2, and at verse 6. And it's talking about us. Starting at verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then listen to this, and to notice the tense. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So, the heavenly places in 1.3, that's the place of spiritual blessing. In 1.18, it's the place where Jesus reigns. In 2.6, it's where we live. Because we've been made alive. He has quickened us. We were dead in our sins, but he's made us alive. And the location in which we are alive is the heavenly places. But that's not all that Paul says about the heavenly places. In verse 10 of chapter 3, he says that um, the, talking about you and me, and the Ephesians, the way back then. But he says there in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the heavenly places is a location where other spiritual beings live. So, so far, it's the place of all our blessings. It's the place where Jesus reigns. It's the place where God's people are spiritually alive. It's a place where other spiritual beings dwell. And the fifth reference is found in verse 12 of chapter 6. And it says there, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the heavenly places is the place of spiritual conflict. And if we take all these five together, I reckon we get a picture of the Christian life of where you and I spend every day if we are Christians. Because we spend every day in a place where God gives his blessings. We spend every day in the world over which Jesus reigns. Uh, We spend every day where all his people are spiritually alive. Uh, We spend every day where there are other spiritual beings, angels and demons, And we spend every day where there's constant spiritual warfare. And as we climb the mountain, we have to take out our spiritual telescope and just see what is said about each of these locations. And if we look long enough, who knows what we will see. Now, if, if I've been reading verse three, verse 3 of chapter 1 for the first time, and I just heard Paul say, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, I would expect him then to list the blessings. But he doesn't. He doesn't list them at all. I mean, if normally if we say, if, for example, we were to say that Tesco has these things on offer, we'd expect them to list what's on offer. So here's Paul, and he says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and then doesn't tell us what they are. But instead... He tells us when they were first started. And he also tells us in what state we have to be in in order to enjoy them. And uh, when did they start? And of course, we know the answer to that question. They were given to every Christian at the same time. Doesn't matter when you were born, whether you lived in the first century or the 21st century, even if you lived 20 centuries BC, doesn't matter. You were given, we were all given our blessings at the same time. And Paul, of course, takes us to a great mystery here. And, you know, the The proper response to a mystery is to leave it mysterious. Not to try and somehow or other bring it down to our limited capacity for understanding. And the the whole Christian world is a huge mystery. Can we explain what happens at the Lord's Supper? No, we can't. Can we explain how a person, when they take their final breath, is instantaneously made perfect in holiness? For them, a conscious, continuous experience? Can we explain why so-and-so sitting in a pub somewhere suddenly finds himself thinking about the problems he has in his heart? Or someone walking down the road and 
looking up at the sky, and he's seen that sky every day of his life previously, but all of a sudden he looks up and says, where did it all come from? Why does that happen? Mysteries. Election's a mystery. That doesn't mean we should try and hide it. Why on earth should we try to hide something God has revealed? It's made there so that we can sit and wonder. Take out your telescope. Just look at it. How far back this telescope goes. And it goes away back into eternity. And we see God the Father. Our Heavenly Father. And what's he doing? Well, he's blessing us with the start of this process of spiritual blessing. And away back there, he chose us and we say, that's amazing. And of course it is amazing. But then, why did he choose us? He chose us to be holy and blameless. Which of course tells us that he chose us as sinners. (coughs) And as he, as it were, I want to put it this way, as he looked at us, he saw sinners. And as we look at him, we see him choosing sinners. And his plan for them is for them to be holy. And not just to be holy, but to be holy and blameless before him. In his presence. Isn't that astonishing that the great eternal God, as he selects his people, and he's got this wonderful plan for them, and what is the ultimate destination he has in mind for them? It's to be before him, with him. But it's not just with him. It's before him. Him looking at them forever. And when is he doing this? It's before the universe is made. This is God's plan. And it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Well, has it? All the ones that are included in this election, they're not yet all standing holy before him. But that was his plan. And it's the reason why everything exists. This is the destination that everything is going ahead to. When transformed sinners, not only made holy, but blameless will be standing in front of him and he will be looking at them with intense delight. So that's the sovereignty behind it. And we praise God for his sovereignty because without his sovereignty it wouldn't happen. But In addition to being holy, what else has God got in mind? After all, if it's just holiness, then all we need to do is to be, have sin removed from us. 
But God's got something else in mind. And that leads us to the third point. Sonship. He has chosen us and he has decided, or he did decide way back then, that we should be, if we're Christians, we should know adoption through Jesus Christ. Now, if you and I were sitting listening to this sentence for the first time as Paul read it, and he said this word adoption, our ears would pick up. Because in the ancient world, adoption was normally done when a very rich person needed a suitable heir. The rich person, for whatever reason, did not have an heir. And therefore he had to find an heir from somewhere. And usually the place where he found it would be down in the slave market. And that rich person would go down to the slave market and there he would pick the best that he saw. Because in the ancient world, doctors and lawyers and all kinds of others would be slaves. But God, when he had this plan of adoption, and of course God is like the rich person. And when he's going to make heirs, he doesn't need to make them. Because he's already got one. His own son is his heir. He's the heir of all things. But here Paul tells us that alongside his son, he wanted others to share the adoption. And God, when he went down to the equivalent of the slave market of sinners, what good ones did he see there? None. They were all spiritually dead. And yet, he made them alive. And as they were listening to verses 5 to 10 there, as Paul talks about adoption, two things would have stood out that people with an Old Testament background would immediately recognize as being connected to being a son. And these two things that they would immediately recognize are the concepts of redemption and inheritance. In the Old Testament, as we know, there's a character called the kinsman redeemer. And the role of the kinsman redeemer was to rescue his relatives from whatever poverty or whatever situation of crisis they found themselves in and they couldn't get out of it. And in order for them to share the inheritance that they had lost, he had to go and pay the price, whatever that price was. And that's the picture that's behind verses 5 to 10. That we needed someone who would redeem us from the, our lost position and who would restore to us our inheritance. And this person had to be our relative. He had to be one of us. And the extraordinary thing is that the person who is our relative, the one who, can, who is qualified to be our redeemer and to pay the price to set us free from the bondage we have brought ourselves into 
and to recover for us what we have lost through our sins. The person that could do that is Jesus. Jesus, God's heir, became our brother. And as our relative, he took up our cause. And as we know on the cross, he paid the price of our redemption. And because he has paid the price and purchased us, we are now joint heirs with him. And we have this marvelous inheritance. And what is this inheritance? Well, Paul says to us, take out your telescope. And look ahead there, as he says in verse 10. And to remind yourself as you look through the telescope. From the top of Mount Ephesians that God has got a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. And it's extraordinary. In this world which is marked by constant division, God is working towards this destined goal of universal harmony. As he says, Paul says there, it's just not things on earth, but things in heaven. And they're all going to be united under Jesus Christ. And that's our eternal inheritance. Things in heaven, things on earth. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the whole cosmos is going to be liberated. And that the whole creation is stretching out its neck in anticipation for the manifestation of the sons of God. And it's possible for us now, from the top of this mountain, as it were, to take out our telescope, which is basically faith. Take out our telescope and look ahead and see this wonderful reality. And instead of constantly gazing on what we're seeing immediately in front of our eyes, which of course we have to look at, but we have to look at it for the right reason. We can look ahead and see that one day a perfect day is coming. It's a day that God has planned when all his children will be before him and when he can gaze in pleasure out on his creation. And Jesus, our brother, our rescuer, he will share the inheritance with us forever and ever. It's good to be a son of God, isn't it? I suppose it's possible for, to imagine the, the young child of a king going round his kingdom and going round his father's kingdom, sorry, and saying to himself, one day this will all be mine. But we should try that with the heavenly blessing. Blessed with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing is not limited to what I can somehow or other find at this moment. But it includes the glory that's ahead. And we're meant to look at it and say to ourselves, one day that will be mine. And then briefly the spirit there in verses 13, sorry, verses 11 to 14, but especially verses 13 and 14, Paul thinks about, Paul's aware, he's up there on the top of the mountain. He suddenly just aware, looks down and thinks of these Christians in Ephesus. 
And these Christians in Ephesus came from two backgrounds. One background was the Jewish background, and he refers to them in verse 12. So those of us who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You know, Paul was a devout Jew. And like all devout Jews, he loved the Old Testament. And he read and reread and reread the Old Testament. And for all we know, he probably knew most of it by heart. But you know, he didn't understand any of it until he met someone on the Damascus Road. Well, of course, he knew that someone called the Messiah was coming. And when he came, it would all make sense. But until he met him on the Damascus Road, he didn't know that the Messiah had come. But there on that Damascus Road, he made this incredible discovery. And we can even see it in the words that he used when he, when he responded to the speaker from heaven. And he said to him, Who are you, Lord? Paul hadn't just met an angel. He had met the Lord. And he discovered that the Lord was speaking to him. And from that moment on, it all made sense. Paul went back to Damascus blind for a few days. But in his mind and in his heart, all the knowledge he had of these Old Testament scriptures just started to slot together. And people wonder how he could suddenly jump from being Saul the persecutor to being Saul the preacher? Well, the answer is quite simple. He found the key. And just the New Old Testament became a new book to him, all about Jesus. And it wasn't just him that had known that, but all these Jews in Ephesus, they had made the same discovery. <clears throat> Not in as dramatic a way as Paul did, but they all had found the key. The key being Jesus. And then in verse, we'll stop in a minute, but then in verse 13, he goes on to talk about the Gentiles in Ephesus. And the ones that he and his friends had taken the gospel to to Ephesus, which was known for its pagan temple. A place of spiritual darkness. But into that came the message of salvation. And these Gentiles, they just believed it. Isn't it extraordinary? They just believed it. They heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and they believed in Jesus. Just like that. And when that happened, or when that took place, they were given the Holy Spirit. As Paul says there in verse 13, they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. As we know, the seal is just a mark of ownership. A rich person would put his seal in a box and everybody who knew who the box belonged to. Well, the sign of divine ownership that a person belongs to God is the possession of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, there's one big difference, of course, between the Holy Spirit and every other kind of seal. And that is that the Holy Spirit's alive. He's not just a simple mark, but he's a person who comes to live in us if we're Christians. And how does he live in us? What does he do inside his people? Well, Paul tells us he is the guarantee or perhaps it should be translated the earnest, the foretaste of the inheritance. And the Spirit in our hearts keeps telling us it's coming. The inheritance is coming. And he tells us to take out your telescope and just look. So what do we say in response? Well, surely we should join Paul and just say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course we can say, blessed be the Son of God who became our brother, our kinsman redeemer, and went to the cross in order to redeem us so that we can share his inheritance. And we can also say surely, blessed be the Holy Spirit, who functions as the foretaste in our hearts of the glory that's to come, and just keeps on reminding us the inheritance is coming. If we're Christians, that's what we should do. That's what Paul did. Praise God. That's what God wants. Praise him. The second thing we can do is if we're not a Christian. And that is to become one. Do what the people in Ephesus did. When they heard the word of truth, the gospel, they believed in him, just trusted in him. And they found themselves the possessors of the Holy Spirit. It's a great thing to be a Christian, isn't it? Shall we pray?